James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. For those of you who have been with us, we have been engaged in a series on the book of James. This is now the, I believe, the fourth message, third message, uh, third message in the book of James, and we have been dissecting uh, James in his letter, going chapter by chapter or phrase by phrase, passage by passage, to see what James has to say about the nature of faith and behavior in the Christian life. Uh, We've noted the difference between James and some of the other epistles that we've been covering, uh, notably in Ordinary Time, which is the season of the church that we're in, the church calendar. We covered the book of Galatians, and the book of Galatians is a champion book for many Reformed thinkers and many Protestant believers. And coincidentally, the reading schedule for this year also is taking us through the book of James. And so if you remember to the first message in this series, it was my bold proposition to lay before you a harmonizing of James with the writings and doctrines of Paul and the rest of the New Testament. We hold that Jesus and Paul do not speak against each other. Likewise, we saw that at the, at the very beginning of the Reformation, there was some tendency to dismiss or discount James, as in Martin Luther saw a difficulty in reconciling James with Paul. And one of the things that I've found interesting about my study in how the Reformers have used the book of James is it wasn't as if the Reformed Church dismissed the book of James. That's a commonly held opinion, especially by those who are Roman Catholic, that the Lutherans or the Protestants, the ones who followed Luther and the, Reforma- and the general Reformation, that they dismissed James to their own demise. But actually, 
It is very clearly the case, especially when you examine the writings of Calvin, some of the other English reformers and Scottish reformers, they held James in a high regard. And so it's been our endeavor today to show in this passage through James's writing and reading it in concert with the rest of the New Testament that James and all the other New Testament books are perfectly unified in presenting one clear way of salvation, which is by faith alone, but it is by a faith we're going to look at today that is not alone. If you, if you understand the solas of the Reformation, the five chief rallying cries, the chief rallying cry for how does, a believe, how does a believer come to be was that salvation is granted by the grace of God and it is granted on the basis of faith alone. However, we've seen last week and the week prior that an error in the church today, 500 years down the road from the Reformation, has arisen in which we have divorced sanctification from justification. But there are many passages in the scripture which put them together. Those who he justified, he also sanctified, past tense. He set them apart. That sanctification which has been accomplished then becomes manifest. And that idea of progressive sanctification is not new for many of us. However, what I want to do today is to show us how James warns us against twisting the purpose of the phrase salvation by faith alone. I want to demonstrate James's clear position, which is, is also Paul's, as we're going to see Paul's position, that the faith which is alone, the faith which never ends in or results in obedience to God's way and God's word, that that faith is no faith at all, but it is a lie and a deception. So, I am very excited about this passage of Scripture. And one of the reasons why is because James is dealing with the, the chief nature of Abraham's faith, which was granted before the giving of the law, as the book of Galatians reminds us. And one of the things I found in my preparation for today's passage is how important Abraham's faith is in the New Testament canon. We know that the Gospels present and put forth Jesus Christ. Likewise, the epistles describe the nature of faith and justification and how we were called by God. But I was just, I was shocked and quite surprised when I saw them all laid out together. The nature of Abraham's conversion and obedience is a major theme of the New Testament. I would, I would venture to say it's maybe in the top five most important topics in the New Testament. And if you've been at our church for a number of years, you may remember that from the time of Hebrews and our time in the book of Galatians. And now here again, James is bringing it up because he wants to demonstrate that what Jesus said is true, that it is those who are of faith that are of Abraham's children. In the words of Paul, he said, do not presume to call Abraham your father. For I tell you that our father, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from stones. That's what the gospel is. God takes dead stone sinners, dead cold hearts, and causes them to become children of Abraham. We saw how that worked in the book of Galatians, and today we're going to again see how that works in the book of James. So I want to look at four aspects today in this passage of James. First is the faith which is dead. And at the onset, I just want to state clearly that we're going to be 
reading James very closely, and we're going to have to hear him in his words and not presuppose our beliefs upon James. The faith which is dead, then a belief which is worthless. Those should sound like contradictions to you. If they don't, James will be very profitable either way. Then finally, justification by works. Again, that should sound like a contradiction to you. What is James doing in this passage? He is equivocating for the sake of effect. He's speaking with words that are used in different ways to demonstrate the hypocrisy of those who say they have faith but never show their faith. And then finally, I want to look at how does this help us? Is it merely something to understand so that we would have theological precision? As important as that is, unless it becomes a way by which we motivatingly destroy sin that remains after we have come to Christ, then we do not understand the point of what James is aiming at. He is aiming to deliver those who are self-deceived, and he is also aiming to bolster by demonstrating how Abraham obeyed, which is that Abraham obeyed because he believed in the promises of God. And that belief hoped against hope. It persevered beyond the trial such that faith was active. That's what James is putting forth in this passage. A faith which causes things to happen, which would not otherwise happen if that faith were not there. So at the very onset, I just want to point out James's description of faith, and he is wrestling with those who would claim to have faith. He is not dismissing those who have authentic faith, but as we read closely, we're going to see he is arguing with those. He is attacking the position of those who say they have faith, but have no evidence of that faith. That sort of faith reveals a deception which is self-imposed. It is self-adopted. It is a deception of the enemy which a sinner who loves his sin but sees the outward reward of sanctification, the outward reward or even the promise of a future glorified state in heaven, they see that as, as desirable and so they put on a vain face, a, a mask of, of hypocrisy which claims to have faith but is no faith at all, but is dead. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers? Now here is where we have to read James closely. Not if someone has faith that is dead, but look at what he says. If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? And, and really closely, that relative pronoun, that faith, he is describing the kind or quality or nature of that faith. He is not saying the faith of a true believer is the same as, a, as the faith of a supposed believer. He's using the same term, but they're not the same thing. Uh, Keith Green from the 70s, uh, he, he had a, a song, and he was talking about the authenticity of believers, and then he, after singing that song at one concert, he then told a joke you know, going to church does not make you a believer any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. The point is, it's a different thing altogether, right? The faith which believes, the faith which is authentic, is not the same faith as the one who claims to have a faith. 
James has commended those who are doers of the word and not hearers alone. That was in chapter 1. And Jesus, after he washes the disciples' feet in John 13, he says, I've done this as an example for you. Blessed are, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is saying the knowledge of them should produce a result. If it is not a result, then you're not blessed. He compares, James compares a faith that has no fruit with merely wishing someone to have food or drink in need. James is not actually, his whole point is not charity. That's not his goal in this passage. Although he would commend people in the prior chapter, those who have true, authentic religion to visit orphans and widows, to care for the poor, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Many of us read this and we think, oh, James is commanding us to give food to those who are hungry. That's not his primary point very closely. He's making an analogy. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and you say, look at that word say again, and you say, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, what will happen? They won't be warmed or filled. The, The mere uttering of the words, be warmed and be filled, does not produce a loss of hunger and and Kelvins to be injected into their body. Do you understand what he's saying? He says, if you merely say something, it won't produce a result. You have to do something. Again, most of us read this and we think, oh, this is a charge to charity, a charge to good works. Good works are good. That's not what James is talking about. He's using an illustration to demonstrate the difference between saying something and showing something. That's the whole point of this passage. James is not simply appealing to doing a work of charity, but rather showing, demonstrating through argument how impossible fruitless faith can be and to meet a need. Fruitless faith, faith that does not do something, but faith that is merely word, faith that is merely something that is a position of the heart and not something that is worked out through your life is no true faith at all. That is why James says in the very next verse, so also faith by itself. He compares in the words, so also. He's saying, just like if someone asked you for money and then you just said, I hope you, I hope you find some, won't get them any money. He's not, he's not commending giving away all of your money to everyone who asks. On my way here on Friday night, someone asked me if I could get them some food, and he had in his bag, he had a grocery bag, and there, were, uh, there was a giant uh, Milwaukee's Best. And he said, oh, this isn't for me. This is for somebody else. But I, and, and I just said, said to myself, you know, this clearly is not a case where he needs my assistance. He was well-clothed, well-fed. He wanted my cash because... He just wanted to steal. He wanted to be a thief. And, and so I said, look, I cannot help you. I, I cannot help you because you clearly don't need my help. That, that's totally different than someone who actually needs my help. That's, this is not James's main point. He's saying, here's an analogy. If you are asked for something and you just meet the need with word, it doesn't meet the need. Words cannot produce action. Action has to produce action. That's what James is talking about here. So you see faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now listen, he is not saying that faith is weak or that faith needs to grow. He's saying that that sort of faith 
is dead on arrival. It cannot be resuscitated. That sort of faith, the faith which is supposed to be had by a person that never results in any obedience to Christ is no true faith at all, but that faith is dead. It's, it's as appealing as eating roadkill. It, there's nothing to hold on to with that sort of faith. I saw a deer on my way to Mansfield last night, and it was across four lanes. There was no appeal for that sort of, there was no chance for life. There was no chance to use the meat. It was worthless. That's what James is saying. James is not suggesting that this faith needs to be revived or even that that believer should work harder. He says that faith is dead. James is here attacking a simple believism or an easy believism, which is never manifested or brought to bear. Notice he is not attacking a weak faith that produces small amounts of obedience. He is, he is attacking a faith that never obeys. But some will, someone will say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Notice again, this difference between saying and showing. In, in the first verse, verse 14, someone says they have faith, and then to the person who has a need, they say, be warmed and be filled. And then again here, but someone will say, I have faith and you have works, or you have faith and I have works. Then, then James switches. He says, show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. For about 10 years of my Christian walk, I did not understand this verse. This is why I am so happy to be able to wrestle with James together today. Because what James is asking for that person who says they have faith to do by showing their faith apart from works is impossible. Because faith is an inward disposition of the heart, mind, will, and emotions. Faith is a secret thing of the heart and spirit, which cannot be disclosed or proven by mere word or assertion. What James is trying to do is he's saying, he's trying to say, you claim that you can have faith apart from my works, prove it, make it visible, demonstrate it without works. And then James goes on to say, I will show you my faith. Again, show, show you my faith by my works. Faith apart from works is invisible. That's what James is arguing about. He's not arguing about those, the necessity of works for salvation. He's arguing about the necessity of works to prove the authenticity of that faith. He's not arguing salvation by works. He's arguing salvation by faith alone, which is proved in works. It's demonstrated through works. Therefore, he goes on to say that faith which never finds completion in obedience is not really faith. It's vain glory. It's a vain thought of the imagination. It is the sin-filled heart looking at the benefits of Christ and making some sort of claim on the benefits of Christ, which is invalid. It has no reality to it. It is, it is a pretense of religion that the evil heart puffs itself up and, and claims to hold, but it is no real faith at all. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. This is, the, this is the kernel of the Christian faith, that there is one God. Remember the, the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
which we hold as Trinitarian believers. God is one. He has manifested himself, revealed and disclosed himself as he is, as Father, Son, and Spirit. That God is one. James is saying, you believe that central tenet of Christianity. And then he goes on to say, even the demons believe that. And then he kind of pokes them in the eye, and the demons fear him. Implying that you who hold this worthless faith, which is merely assertion and never obedience, you don't even have the sort of fear, which, the fear of God, which is appropriate even for demons to have, let alone those who hold to Christ. He implies that someone who merely believes in God abstractly does not have that fear. That's why he says, they believe and shudder, implying that holding on to a false faith is something that should be, you should be afraid of. That should not be something that, that you cling to. Not only is that sort of faith dead, but it has no purpose, worth, or function. Verse 20, again, remember this distinction between saying and showing. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Remember, this is the deer that's spread across four lanes of traffic. It's worthless. It's not worth holding to. It's not worth reviving. It's not worth clinging to. Faith, which asserts itself to not need works, is no faith at all. It is a doctrine of devils. He then goes on to say, do you want to be shown? And then he's showing through argumentation. He's showing through proof. Now we have come to possibly the most difficult portion of James's entire letter, the one which causes most people to claim that there is some division between James and Paul and to suggest that the Reformed faith is wrong because it does not properly integrate James's warning that salvation or justification, rather, is by works and not by faith alone. Many hear that verse that, James, that we're about to read, and they hear it and say, well, clearly he just said justification by works and not faith alone. And, and so they hear that and contrast it with the central, one of the central tenets of the Reformation, which is justification by faith alone. And they say, see, James contradicted that. But again, I want to demonstrate James is using words that other people use. They're the same words, but they use them in a different way. And I, I believe if we read James very closely and clearly, it will become readily apparent exactly what he is talking about. We must be careful not to twist Scripture. In Second Peter 3, Peter commends his hearers. He says that there are things which are in the writings of Paul, which those who are untrained and unstable twist to their own destruction. We must not attempt to take the Scriptures and twist them or read them wrongly so that we interject a division between James and Paul. That we assert there is some difference between James and Paul and therefore try to dismantle the unity of Scripture because we have this difficulty in reconciling them. And so then we, because we have that difficulty, we project that onto Scripture. Brothers and sisters, we must always be on guard against twisting the Scripture so as to to claim that it has error or has problems. Peter says there are some difficult things. And, and later in the next chapter in James, he says, many of you should not become teachers for this reason, because the Christian faith 
is assailed on every side. It is assailed on the spiritual day-to-day side, but it is also assailed on the doctrinal side. And this is where we have to be extremely clear. What is the doctrine of salvation taught by the New Testament, held by Paul, asserted by Christ, and also asserted here by James? It is that faith will produce obedience. This is what James is saying. We must ask ourselves, what precisely does James mean by this phrase, justified by works? What is James teaching? Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He was justified by works. But that is not the same thing as when we use the phrase, those who are saved are justified by faith. What I believe James is saying, and we're going to see here in just a minute, is that first there is a declaration of righteousness, and then there is a disclosing of righteousness. Does James mean that Abraham was put right before God because he obeyed? This is the central question. By the phrase justification by works, does James mean that Abraham was justified, made righteous by God through his obedience? Does James mean that or does he mean something else? If so, would not this also contradict the rest of the New Testament? That's the the two questions we have to ask. Does James mean that Abraham was received as righteous by God because he obeyed? And if that is what James is saying, how does that not contradict the rest of the New Testament? And I want to assert to you, if you ever find an error in the scriptures, the scriptures are worthless. But you will never find that error because it does not exist. We hold as Reformed believers, and by Reformed, I'm not using capital R Reformed. Anyone of us in the room who is not actively pursuing the Roman church or the Orthodox church, we are Reformed believers. That is, that's just the set. Even if you don't claim to be part of the Reformation, this is the gospel which you have received. We hold that there is no error in any scripture that scripture is inerrant and infallible in all of its manuscripts. And moreover, we also hold that it is clear and profitable. That the scriptures, though some places are difficult, they are able to be understood by the church of God. And those who are truly believers are given the illumination of the Holy Spirit to know what the scriptures teach. It is not impossible for you, right? what was given through Moses, the word of faith. It's not impossible. Who will go up into the heavens? No, it's near you. It's been given to you. It's been disclosed to you. That is what we hold as reformed believers, that there is no error in the scripture. So if James contradicts Paul, if he does that, if we arrive at that interpretation, we know we're wrong. We know that sort of interpretation is not valid to build upon. It is a sort of interpretation which will fall apart when on closer examination. And that should always be your go-to. I don't see something in Scripture. I don't understand something in Scripture. Keep reading. Read other places. Get input from fellow believers. Wrestle with the text. Like, Like Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord until the breaking of day. Do not let 
him go until you, until you are blessed. That is what it means to wrestle with the scriptures. Clearly, therefore, James does not mean that Abraham became righteous by obedience. This is extremely important that you understand this because if you mix any element of the necessity of obedience to be earned, to earn a righteousness, you have missed the gospel entirely. That's what we saw in the book of Galatians. Foolish Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are, now, are you now desiring to be perfected by the works of the law? Absolutely not. That would be a perversion of the gospel. James, therefore, is in complete harmony with the rest of the New Testament writings. I want to look at just four passages here from Paul and Paul's writings, although we could also go to the gospels, and it would be fine, and we could also go to Revelation. I want to harmonize with Paul here because that is most of the time what is in our, the forefront of our minds. Verse 27 in Romans 3, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Doesn't that contradict James? No. Peter's letter to the Romans upholds justification apart from law-keeping. Romans 4 actually is one of those places. It actually is completely devoted to how did Abraham believe God. Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of Christ. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Verse 9, that I'm, sorry, verse 8, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Again, Paul's personal testimony was that though he was a devout Jew, though he was circumcised, though he was of the tribe of Benjamin, he dismissed all those credentials so that he could be found in Christ. He stopped trusting in his religious pedigree that he might be reconciled to God on the basis of faith alone in Christ's work alone. He has renounced all attempts to earn that righteousness on own. Verse 21 of Galatians 2, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What, what Paul is saying in that verse is that if it were even possible for someone to be justified by doing the works of the law, then the cross of Christ was a tragedy. Because he's saying then Christ died for no purpose, it was intense suffering, the, the atoning of the sins of the world for no effect, for no necessity. That's what Paul is saying. So James cannot mean that Abraham earned God's approval by being willing to sacrifice Isaac. Remember, the scriptures tell us exactly when Abraham was declared as righteous. You, you have to be reading James in concert with the rest of the scriptures. And clearly, Genesis tells us exactly when Abraham was declared as righteous. Genesis 15, 5 through 6. He, that is, God brought him, Abraham, outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. If you were with us during the time of Galatians, that series, you will remember quite clearly that Christ is the offspring and that by union with Christ, that offspring, which is singular, Paul makes a big deal about that singular offspring, becomes the stars of the heavens. 
that through the one Christ offspring, he is multiplied in sons and daughters of God who are made out of wretched sinners. Nevertheless, look closely at verse 6. And he believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Abraham was not justified by works. He was justified by faith because God gave him a promise that your offspring, this one child which you will have, which will come forth from your loins, that offspring will become a marvelous multitude that cannot be counted, that fills the heavens, the place where God resides. That's what Abraham was given. That promise, Abraham hears the promise, he believes God, and God reckoned it to it to him. He counted it as the God who sees the heart, recognized the faith in Abraham, and counted Abraham as righteous. That is, he recognized the response of faith given to the promise. That is, Abraham hears the promise, he understands the promise by God's grace, and then again by God's grace, believes upon the promise, clings to the promise, and trusts to the promise. And at that very moment, God declared Abraham righteous because he believed in the promises of God. And as I mentioned at the start of this message, I was fascinated as I was preparing, seeing how much of the New Testament takes up itself and concerns itself with how did Abraham believe God. Abraham was considered righteous through belief in the promise before circumcision and before the offering of Isaac. Remember in Galatians, Paul argues he was counted as righteous before the giving of the law. Here, Genesis tells us he was counted as righteous before the testing of offering up Isaac. We recognize, therefore, two distinct uses of the word justification or justified. The first, and, and, and they are linked together in the biblical text, the first is declared or recognized as righteous. That is, God here at this moment, looking at Abraham's heart in response to the promise, he counted it to him as righteous. He issued a decree which gave Abraham a righteousness which comes by faith. And then the second use of justification or justified is a disclosure. That is, it is, it is a secret thing which is hidden and unable to be observed only by, except for by God alone, and then it is made manifest. That is the whole point of what James is talking about. Saying versus showing. Those things which are held secretly and which must be manifest. That is exactly what James is concerning himself. James does not nullify the promise of God by adding the condition of obedience to Abraham's being accepted before God. That is what Paul asserts in the book of Galatians is that if you add works to the, the requirement of faith, that that nullifies the promise. The promise cannot be nullified. It came before the obedience, before the giving of the law. Rather, James emphasizes that the test of the authenticity of faith is an obedience that is rooted in the promises of God. This is where this massive work of theology that we have been engaging in becomes practical because James is wanting us to understand how do we move from the faith which trusts Christ to the faith which clings to Christ in the trial. It is by understanding the relationship between the justification of declaration and the justification of disclosure. 
or the justification that is given by God and that justification which is proved both to you and those around you and through the history of the text of Scripture, the demonstration of that righteousness which is shown in life. Beyond the test of authenticity, this is the original intention of the gospel. This isn't a secondary idea of once you've been trusting in Christ for a little bit, you then go on to add obedience to that. That is the kernel of the gospel at the, at the core, at the very beginning. Look at what Paul says. We're going to again look at four places. Verse, uh, verse 6 of chapter 5 in Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. He's saying whether you were circumcised, whether you were born a Jew, or whether you were uncircumcised, you were born a Gentile, that doesn't matter at all. What matters is this, but only faith, period, no, he says, faith that is working through love. That is the sort of faith that is in the original intention of the gospel. Faith that works through love for God can only, because, it can only happen because God has loved us, and God loved us through the cross of Christ. That is where he made his love manifest. And so what Paul is saying is that the thing which counts is the faith that works through love. Again, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 3, Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Why? Because we are remembering before God and before our God and Father of this, your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. That is the quality of New Testament faith. It is not simply knowing intellectually or assenting to the facts of the gospel, that Christ died as a recompense for sinners, that Christ was offered up as a propitiation for sins. Knowing that fact is not the same as believing that fact. The head knowledge must become head and heart knowledge. It must become knowledge which is apprehended by faith. Again, Paul says here that there is no necessary division between faith and labor in the Christian walk. One follows the other. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 would tell you the same thing. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11, to this end, he writes another letter, and he uses the exact same phrase, apparently wanting to emphasize this. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. Not work alone. Every work of faith by his power. Paul, in his opening and closing of the letter to Romans, to the Romans, describes the purpose for why his apostleship was given from Christ. Paul says, I received apostleship from Christ through whom we have received grace and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith. He doesn't just want to disseminate the information about Christianity. He's not just handing out systematic theology by Wayne Grudem across the Mediterranean. He is not just merely wishing for people to know who Jesus was in an arbitrary fashion. He says, the reason I was made an apostle was so that I would be able to spread the faith which results in obedience. What, it, what was the Great Commission? Go therefore, because I have all authority in heaven and earth, go therefore into all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. 
That is the Great Commission. It is teaching to observe. Just as the falling of an apple shows the invisible power of gravity, so also does obedience testify to true faith. Remember, faith is an inward disposition of the heart which clings to the promises of God. But that faith cannot be observed. On, I can't just look at you as I'm looking around the room, and I can't just see which one of you, one, one of, ones of you are believing and not believing. That's what James is saying here. Faith which is said has to become faith which is shown. If it never becomes faith which is shown, it is not faith which is said. It is something other than faith. James clearly is demonstrating or is teaching his readers how they are publicly demonstrated as authentic children of God. His purpose concerns testing, proving, showing, and seeing not merely saying. Look at verses 18, 20, 22, 24. Verse 18, he says, but someone will say, and then he issues a charge, show me your faith. Verse 20, do you want to be shown? Verse 22, you see. Verse 24, you see. Again, saying versus seeing. Holding to in the heart versus disclosing and demonstrating through life. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Do you understand what he means there? He says that there was a goal of faith at the beginning, that the faith which Abraham had was completed. It was like the beginning of a sentence which needs to end. Abraham believed in the promises of God, which was, to demonstrate that belief, required testing. And if you remember any of the history of the Old Testament scriptures, that's always what God does. He issues a promise, and then that promise inevitably, through the purposes of God, is tested and either demonstrated or not demonstrated. This is why we know Esau rejected the promise, because he did not persevere through testing. He gave up his birthright. He didn't believe it was valuable. He had no faith that it was worth holding to. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. There is a declaration of God which sees the heart of Abraham and says, justified. And then through the life of Abraham, as the promise is tested, as the promise is opposed, then that promise becomes filled. And again, God who called him justified, righteous, then again calls him friend of God. That's exactly what James is saying. There was a termination to the original goal set about in the faith of Abraham, which is that he would be demonstrated as one of the righteous ones. Verse 24, so, so what does James mean in the sentence? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's not saying that Abraham needed to obey in order to be received but rather that the reception of God on, on Abraham's behalf resulted in a justification, not an original declaration of righteousness, but a justification which is understood as a disclosure or a demonstration or a proof of that righteousness. James therefore means that Abraham was shown as a true believer when he obeyed by offering up Isaac. So the question is, how was Abraham justified by his works? How, that is, how was he demonstrated as righteous? What, what does the New Testament say Abraham did? It says this. And I want to ask the question because this is, 
This is deeply applicable to us in our Christian walk. Was Abraham afraid of losing the promise through his disobedience? Think about this. Was Abraham in trepidation and fear that the promise would not come about if he did not obey? I do not believe that is the case. Based on the canon of scripture, which clearly shows us that his faith was not rooted in his power, but in God's ability to bring about the promised word. Think about what the, the context of Abraham. This is why Paul was saved, because he was a murderer, so that the grace of God would be demonstrated as to be able to save murderers. This is why Abraham was chosen by God. Abraham was an old man who was too old to issue forth seed from his loins. Sarah was an old woman who was way too old to have children. God gave a promise which was impossible for them to perform. And therefore, Abraham, because he trusted in the nature and character of God, he trusted, and the scriptures tells us, he hoped against hope. He hoped against all things which said to him, it is impossible for that promise to come about. Abraham trusted in God. If you want to look at this, I would encourage you, Romans 4 would be an excellent way to spend the rest of your Lord's day in reading it and thinking about it. His faith was not rooted in his power or even ability in this context. I believe that is the sovereign plan of God to make it clear to those who would come after Abraham, who would want to emulate his faith, that it was never in Abraham's ability to perform the word. Verse 17 of Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. You see what James is saying? That that faith was active in his works. Hebrews says the same thing. By faith Abraham offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, Abraham, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Remember, God, God said, through your offspring, and then, and then Abraham has Ishmael, and then he says, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. And God says, not so. It will be through Isaac. God narrows the scope of the promise to clarify. And then look at the next verse of Hebrews 11, chapter, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What, what is the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying that when Abraham was tested, he took hold of the promise and then he understood in the light of his circumstances, okay, I can't figure out how God is going to bless me through Isaac if I'm supposed to kill Isaac. But God told me he would do it and he told me to kill Isaac, so I'm going to obey. God will figure it out. And the writer of Hebrews, by the Holy Spirit, is able to perceive through back in time to the motivation of Abraham's heart and mind in this moment is Abraham imagined, well, God could raise him from the dead. Isn't that exactly what the Christian faith is all about? Because God promised to bless him through Isaac, Abraham reasoned that God would complete the word in some way that he could not understand naturally. Dead people do not come back to life. Abraham's obedience after receiving the promise was rooted in the unchangeable nature and character of God that his promise would not be revoked, though tested in exactly the point of the promise. Abraham hoped against hope. He believed 
God. Verse 13 of Hebrews 6, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham would not have obtained the promise if it were not, be, if it were not able to be obtained by faith. If Abraham's faith, which he was supposed to have in Genesis 15, was no longer true faith, he would not have kept believing and obeying. That is what James is saying, is that faith, which is authentic, lays hold of the promise. That is the nature and character of that faith. So this is the question. What should this do? What should this knowledge do for a Christian? Why does this matter to you at all? It may be hard to understand what James is trying to tell us, but I think when we read it in concert with what we've already heard James say, he's trying to demonstrate to us the test of faith. Does faith waver or does faith lay hold of? Does faith short circuit under trial or does faith persevere under trial? Now, is James talking about the sort of faith which perseveres under every trial? I do not believe that he's talking about that. I believe that we still have sin. First John tells us clearly, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If we did not need an advocate, First John wouldn't have told us we had one. We still sin. We still, from time to time, doubt the promise. But this is the character or nature of authentic faith, is it eventually perseveres. It eventually results in obedience. That is not, and, and the faith, the, the heart which truly has that sort of faith does not love the idea of not persevering. It doesn't say, oh, there's my escape point. I can still claim faith, but fail every once in a while and, and just say, oh, my sanctification's getting worked out. Faith, which is true faith, wants to persevere. It loves and clings to the promise. So I want to encourage you with this. James is giving us a test a test by which we ought to measure ourselves from time to time. Does our faith have real substance? How is it possible if I claim Christ but never obey in anything that he wants me to do? That's what James is attacking. He's not just attacking false faith. He also wants to bolster true faith by doing this, by showing to us, his hearers, his readers, how the mechanism by which Abraham persevered, that his faith was active along with his works. How does that become helpful? It becomes helpful to you because you see the pattern. Abraham heard the promise and then he believed the promise. This is what the New Testament tells us. Faith only comes by hearing. So the answer to problems in the Christian life is, I have an issue. I must hear what God says about that issue. If I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, do I go to the world to hear their opinion of that issue? Or do I come to the scriptures to hear he made them feel male and female? For this reason, a man shall be clean. Okay, I have an issue of pornography. Do I go to the psychologist to figure out what went wrong with me when I was younger? Or do I go to the scriptures which warn me against the dangers of lust which war against my soul? I've got an issue with greed. Do I try to give all my money away and earn a righteousness by God by doing works of charity? No. 
I go to the scriptures which warn against greed and also present greater promises which deliver me from my love of money. The pattern which is exhibited in the book of James about the nature of Abraham's obedience ought to be emulated by us. And if you understand the gospel, that's how Christ endured the cross. He despised the shame, but he endured the suffering. Why? Because of the surpassing pleasure that he was promised and given. That is exactly how you and I are to emulate. Our faith must become active, and it becomes active by taking hold of the word of God. What I want to call you to is a new understanding of how you should fight the Christian fight. In any issue or, or circumstance of life in which you still struggle, the effort is not, I'm going to try harder to resolve in my will, It is, I must subject myself to the word of God, lay hold of the promises of God, and use those as the ammunition by which I kill sin. Not just resolve, not just willful effort, not just, I'm sorry, I'm going to try better, God. It is to lay hold of the promises and to stand upon those promises. And I think that's what James is talking about in his entire letter. If you remember back to our time in in James chapter 1, I just want to encourage you with this. I would encourage you to begin to memorize scriptures which present the promise and and then to meditate on those scriptures because it is by faith in the promises of God that we can defeat temptation. It is only by the word of God made active by the spirit of God that we can use the grace of God. It is not by willful effort. We should avail ourselves to the means of God's grace in our fight against sin. James says, for a body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart apart from works is dead. The nature of faith which James commends in this chapter is the faith which believes God and persists in trusting him enough to obey. That is the nature of that faith. Any faith which does not eventually get there is no faith at all. And again, I said, remembering James chapter 1, I believe that's what James has been going for all along. I want this verse to become precious to you and real to you. That's why I would encourage you, if you're a member of this church, you consider yourself a member, to memorize this verse. Um, because what it does is it shows you the nature of the Christian fight. James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. I want you to think about that until you can see it. Pornography or a crown for eternity. Arguing with my spouse and treating them poorly or crown for eternity. I want to have something to throw down before Christ. The the elders around the throne, they cast their crowns before the Lord. I want to have something to throw at his feet. Why is there a crown? It's not because of my effort, but because of this, which God has promised to those who love him. You see, it's faith working through love. That's what James is saying in this, in this verse. I want you to understand that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. They will not be revoked from you. They will not be taken from you. God will not lie to you. He will not put forth Christ and then take him away saying, you didn't live up to it but rather because the promises are true 
And there are great rewards, as we saw last week. There are great rewards which await those who love Christ. That those rewards would become precious and sweet. I remember a sermon from one of the men who shaped my life and ministry is Dr. John Piper, who was just retired from being a pastor. And he gave a sermon a few years ago. He's now 70 plus. And would that we all make it to at least 70. Amen? One of the things that he said that I have never forgotten is he, he described the nature of getting older. And ye, ye older saints, this is out of respect and love. Don't hear anything that I'm saying as not being respectful. But he said the, the, the benefit of the grace of getting older is now I can see the ticker at the end of the race much more clearly. The problem of youth is that we are deceived in thinking we will live forever. And then Piper went on to say, and I can see the Lord much more clearly on the other side of that ticker. Do you know that's where you're going? Do you know that's what you're anticipating? First John tells us anyone who hopes to see the Lord sanctifies himself. Is that hope real and alive to you? It cannot become real and alive to you by you resolving harder on your own. It can only become more real to you by seeing the promises of God laid out clearly in Scripture and by being transformed by the grace of the Spirit such that those promises become greater than the temptations which, face, which you face. Let's close. Father, we ask you that James would be clear for us. We thank you for the beautiful unity of your scripture. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your scripture. We pray that we would not neglect the promises. I pray that, first, that James 1, chapter, or verse 12, would, would become precious and sweet to us, that we would consider ourselves as those who will receive a crown of life for those who've been called by God, those who are loved by God and love him. Father, I pray that you would do this, what, what words cannot do, that by your spirit you would perform a work of grace in us, that you would deliver us from ongoing corruption, that we would no longer dismiss our entering into common sin and common temptation, but that we would utilize your word like a sword with which to fight the fight of faith. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.